0: Dismissed out these doors to your right. And let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're doing a a four-part series uh, out of Luke's um, books, the Gospel of Luke and also Acts, uh, to explore not just Palm Sunday and Easter, uh, but the week before Palm Sunday and the week after Easter. So, uh, So stay tuned next week to see kind of what happened after Easter, um, what happened after the resurrection. Please stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 12 in Luke 24. This is the account of the women uh, going to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Father, would you bless the reading and receiving of your word uh, to us this morning. May we marvel, uh, and may we be changed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think it was about uh, ten or twelve years ago. Kathy and I uh, decided we were going to run the Charlottesville four miler, and uh, we went online and we registered. And you know, uh, it was a good opportunity for us to you know go get some exercise together and, and go um, do this race. It was a, it's to benefit breast cancer, so the cause was great and so on and. Um, and we're, you know, chugging along and, and we're getting trained and getting ready. And the day comes, beautiful spring, you know, day like today. Um, and we, we arrive uh, and, and there's plenty of people, tons of people. And they're all women. Um, and, and, and it's the Charlottesville women's four miler that I had, I had registered for. And I, I mean, I knew that, but I thought, well, it's to benefit women. Uh, it's breast cancer research, and this is great, right? And so, Kathy had registered, and I'm imagining the person on the other end of the registration, you know, hey, great, Kathy Daly, super, Essan Daly. Huh. I, haven't, I haven't heard of that name, but maybe that's maybe that's Kathy's daughter, you know, uh, and put on the pile. So I never got flagged, never got the heads up, you know, hey, sorry, buddy, uh, you're you're out of here, but. I went to that, um, that four-miler expecting to run a road race, expecting to, to, to finish last, but to run a road race. And my hopes my hopes were dashed. Let's talk about the expectation of these women as they arrive at the tomb. And how they are confronted after they, they go and they announce the news of the resurrection, the, the men, the apostles, receive this news like an idle tale, like a fairy tale, like nonsense. So we we'll want to talk about the dynamics of the truth of the resurrection. But then, so what if it's true? Is it an idle truth? Or is it something that transforms us, that, that really not only changes our lives, but changes our words, uh, what we say and uh, in our own testimony to the resurrection. Uh, the first thing that you need to know is that dead men uh, are dead, you know, conventionally. That's generally how it works. Dead people are dead. And so why are the women carrying spices to the tomb? They're carrying these spices to finish the, the the initial embalming work that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had done late Friday because the uh, sunset was approaching and the Sabbath was to begin where you're not supposed to do any work. Um, and so these women had uh, spent Saturday... Uh, with, uh, under the Sabbath, and they were waiting, chomping at the bit for the first light of dawn where they could go and finish embalming Jesus' body. And they took these spices to the tomb. Why are they carrying spices to the tomb? They're carrying spices to the tomb because they're expecting Jesus is dead. Not a single woman in that party was going, gosh, I sure hope Jesus is okay. None of, none of them are thinking, boy, that crucifixion was rough. I, I hope he pulls through. Nobody's thinking that. Their expectation is that they're going to meet a dead man. And furthermore, we read that they're, they're perplexed. Um, they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They were perplexed about this. Why are they perplexed? They were perplexed because, well, the stone had been rolled away. This huge, massive boulder that's rolled in front of the entrance to a cave-like tomb uh, to prevent, you know, grave robbery and and looting and and so on. Um, And so they're perplexed because the stone's gone or opened and the tomb is opened and the body is gone. And none of these women, uh, they're perplexed because none of them are thinking, Oh, good, he did rise, Just, just like he said, good for Jesus gay Jesus. Nobody's saying that because Jesus is dead in their thinking. And when the two men in the dazzling apparel, these are angels, uh, they set the women straight and they charge them and and this this happens um, as we read the resurrection accounts that people uh, they they realize after the, the Holy Spirit through the messenger makes them aware of what Jesus had taught them while he was in Galilee and then they go, oh yes, he did talk about three days he would be dead and then he would rise. And so they believe and they run back and they tell the disciples, they tell the apostles, and look at verse 11, but these words seemed to them, to the men, an idle tale and they did not believe them. Um, That idle tale is a uh, it's an interesting word because it's a medical term. You heard from Dr. Gilday this morning. We're hearing also from Dr. Luke, who has a background as a physician. Uh, as an as a author of the gospel, his background is in medicine, and he uses a medical term here uh, for delirious talk. Somebody who's under a, a, a febrile uh, seizure or some kind of fever where they're, they're not even aware of what they're saying, they're babbling, that's idle talk, the the, the Greek word that's used there. And so the men just dismiss these women outright. They think they are crazy. Some of the translations, you even use the word nonsense. And I love that the first skeptics to the resurrection are not the enemies of Jesus, They're not the Pharisees, they're not the Sadducees, they're not the Romans, they're none of those people who have been against Jesus all this while. They're not the the first skeptics. The first skeptics are the apostles. That's pretty cool. Because what that tells us is that um, the Bible is for skeptics. What that tells us is that God loves skeptics. That this, um, this whole... Uh, announcement: This revelation is designed to to press against our presuppositions, our assumptions, and help us see a different conclusion. God loves skeptics; he welcomes skeptics. Um, Luke is writing his gospel on behalf of those who were be skeptical. Um, way back in chapter one, when he begins, he says, "It seemed good to me, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write." An orderly account for you that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So you can know for certain that this is true. All, all the stuff you've been hearing about Jesus, let me, let me nail it down for you so that you can know what's, what's um, hearsay and what's true. The Apostle John does the same thing in his gospel. He gets to the end of what he's written in chapter 20 and he says these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Bible is written for skeptics. God loves skeptics. I know because I was one and still am one. I was a skeptic because uh, growing up for 18 years in my life, I didn't have any church background. Um, God was sort of this power, this force, um, you know, a Star Wars fan. Uh, I, uh, I liked what Thomas Jefferson um, had said about God being like this cosmic clockmaker, wound it, up, made it, wound it up, and then went on a perpetual vacation, the deist kind of thing. So that was my um, that was my spiritual outlook, and I was skeptical of all all the, that uh, the church or any kind of authoritative claim from the Bible. And then things changed for me. What changed? Well, what changed for me basically was that I learned to be um, skeptical of my skepticism. And I learned to, to doubt my doubts. I was a freshman at JMU and started having conversations with people who were following Jesus and who were, who were devout, you know, who were serious. They weren't kind of doing one thing on the weekends and then showing up at their Bible study. Um, they really meant what they said and they lived the life that was consistent with it. And I, it got my attention. You know, the, the biggest person that got my attention uh, was my wife, um, you know, who I was dating at the time. She meant what she said. She even broke up with me because I was a non-Christian. I'm going, wow, she must love Jesus a lot because I'm hot stuff. And she gave me a, um, no. anyway. Uh, so that got my attention. And I started to go, okay, um, maybe I don't know everything about life and death and eternity. And maybe I ought to open myself up to, to some other viewpoints. You know, how, you know the difference between a dialogue and two simultaneous monologues? Husbands and wives, you know what I'm talking about. There are conversations when you're giving a monologue and, and your spouse is giving a monologue and you're talking past each other and nobody's listening, nobody cares. You just want to make your point. Um, and then there's those times when you actually engage and you have real dialogue. And you go, here's my perspective. And then you go, oh, well, what's your perspective? Oh, let me hear your... I'm open to what you're saying. Huh, that changes how I think about things. And, and basically, that's, uh, that's the kind of... Uh, dialogue, I guess you could call it, that I entered into with Jesus. I, or I just was willing to listen. I was willing to set aside me, my presuppositions about life and death and eternity and go, maybe I ought to listen to Jesus when it comes to life and death and eternity. Um, and that that was a big deal. The other thing that happened to me was I didn't just learn to doubt my doubt or be skeptical about my, my skepticism. I had to... I had to Um, Well, basically this, I had to uh, uh, apply the same rule of skepticism that I did, that I had towards spiritual things to Christianity. I wanted to apply those same standards to my own assumptions going into it, right? Um, To where it actually made more sense to me to believe in Jesus than not to. Like it would take more faith to remain a deist than to believe in Jesus, and that was hard for me because the other thing that changed was um, I, had to get over, I had to get over something personal with, with Jesus. I had to get over something personal with God. And that was basically this whole thing of growing up in a pretty broken home and seeing a lot of junk uh, and just going, where's God? At the end of the day, my, my arguments really weren't so much intellectual. It was personal. God, where are you? And we still have that question today. God, where were you yesterday when a suicide bomber blows himself up and kills 100 Syrian refugees trying to just escape the horror of Aleppo? What's going on there? And every day, there's a question like that that comes up. Every day, there's something to go, you know, I wonder what... Uh, how I should approach this, and the difference for me uh, after asking you know and insisting on I need to know, I need to know basically what happened was it came down to every other option out there, either presented me with some kind of eastern you know serene smile cross legged face that 's sort of removed and aloof from this world and its pain, or you get stringent rules about. You know, this is how you uh, should relate, and um, you can't even call Allah a father. Um, you know, you just, you just toe the line. Be good and toe the line. Um, and instead, when I look at Jesus, what I get is somebody uh, who doesn't say why all this stuff happens, but he does enter in. And you could say, in a sense, that Jesus was willing to be blown to bits on the cross to rescue us from this world's pain. To rescue us from our own sin where we become culpable for this world's pain from our own independence and autonomy where we ignore what Jesus has said about how to love one another and instead we end up in conflict with one another, whether that's on a one-to-one scale or whether it's, uh, you know, one group to one other group, from one city to another city, one country to another country, one race to another race, one culture to another culture, you know, on and on it goes. Uh, I had to realize that my own problem really was about me and my uh, desire for autonomy. I thought I knew how to run this universe better than God did. Um, That my sin, let's just call it what it is, uh, goes all the way back. It's a a family broken system, uh, generational sin that goes all the way back to Adam, uh, where God says, here's what I want you to do, Adam. And Adam says, God, thanks for the advice. I think I'll go this way. And that was me, imagining I can run the universe better than God did. And I had to raise the white flag uh, the week after my freshman year uh, from JMU. And since then, you know, I continue to go, wow, I don't know about this, Uh, but I'm going to apply the same skepticism and doubt uh, to, um, to the world's assumptions as I would to any religious claim. Be an equal opportunity skeptic. Be God's skeptic. If you're here and you're not sure what do you think of Jesus, you know, the first thing you need to realize or, or I want to challenge you to do is be an equal opportunity doubter. Are you going to doubt your own assumptions are you going to be skeptical about your own presuppositions as, as, as skeptical as you are about Jesus, for instance? Apply the same standard. And then at the end of the day, we've got to realize how do, how do we deal with our own sense of guilt? How do we deal with our own culpability? yes. We experience a lot of pain in this world, but we inflict a lot of pain too. We're victims and we're culprits. And Jesus is compassionate toward the places where we are victimized, and he holds us accountable for the places where we are culpable. And what are you going to do with your culpability? Jesus died on the cross to take our sin away. That's the Christian claim. That's the the gospel. Uh, But what happened after the cross was uh, he went into the tomb. He comes out resurrected and victorious and sinless. The sentence is paid. Sin and condemnation and guilt stay in the tomb in a sense. And so when you put your faith in Jesus, we are united to him uh, in his resurrection. We are united to him in his sinlessness. We're declared not guilty. We're we're given his clean record and our our sense of being dirty is washed away through his blood is the way that the church expresses that. So if you're new here and you're trying to put those things together, let me encourage you, continue. You You don't have to check your brain at the door of the church and you don't have to have this blind faith in Jesus, but you do have to have faith in him. But I'm going to argue that it takes more faith to not believe in him than to believe in him. So this is not an idle tale. It's actually truth, and it's rational, and it's reasonable. But, uh, but how did Peter respond to what, Jesus, what the women said? In verse 12, he rose and ran to the tomb. And he stoops, and he looks in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So, you know, what did Peter see? Peter looks in and he sees uh, basically what looks like a cocoon, an empty cocoon. You know how you see that, and the caterpillar is turned into a butterfly and it's gone. And it's this metamorphosis of the body of Jesus. The cocoon is there, Jesus is gone. And Peter, what does he do? He's amazed, right? He believes it's true, the body's gone. The women were right. I think I'll go home. <laughs> That's what it says. Peter went home. No big deal. I guess, if he didn't know what to do with it. Uh, Same thing happens later on in this chapter. Um, The road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his companion, they're walking along. Jesus uh, is veiling himself, his identity, and he's asking, you know, hey, what's going on? And they're sharing about everything that happened. Um, They say, hey, some of the women from our company amazed us. And they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And they just keep walking on the road to Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem. Can you ask yourself if you had heard an account of a resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem and people, your friends had seen him, And uh, the women were saying that the tomb is gone, and you can go to the tomb, and it's just a cocoon there. Um, Wouldn't you want to stay in Jerusalem to see more of what's going on? Why are they going to Emmaus? So I think it's possible, right, that people hear about the resurrection, they go to church, they've been in church all their lives. Sure, the resurrection is true. Sure, Easter is true. He is risen. He is risen indeed, yes. But for them, it's an idle truth. It's true, but it just kind of sits there. It's idle. It doesn't do anything. It's non-transformative. Flannery O'Connor was an author, um, American author. She wrote a lot of short stories, and uh, one of her most famous one, you know, I think hands down, is uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's a dark tale, um, a dark tale of this uh, three-generational family uh, going in the station wagon on a little vacation trying to get to Florida, and they make a detour. And they get lost because the grandmother in the story, she just won't stop talking um, and prattles on and on and convinces, I guess whittles down her her grown son to to finally take this little shortcut, um, little detour uh, to go see this place that she remembers. Well, they have an accident. Car flips over, they get out of the car, and along comes the misfit and his two companions. The misfit is a serial killer. Uh, and the story ends in, uh, in, in kind of their encounter. Um, the misfit, I think it's interesting that Flannery O'Connor puts these words in the villain's mouth. How even a villain can understand this. That Jesus thrown everything off balance. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. And he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said... There's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. There's no pleasure but meanness. And that's the God's honest truth. Blue pill or red pill? If he rose, that changes everything. If he didn't, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're good, and it doesn't matter if you're bad. Tim Keller puts it more positively. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, whether or not he rose from the dead. This is not an idle truth. This this has consequences. This changes how we look at life. Um, Most of you are probably aware that this Tuesday is a very important day. Jay Ford is very aware of this. Uh, He's an accountant, and he knows that taxes are due April 18th. You got a couple extra days this year. Um, And If you know that that day is tax day but don't do anything about it, well, that's going to have implications. Uh, For my son, Michael, for instance, he thought, well, he's 19 years old. He made a little bit of money last year um, actually working uh, with Dr. Gilday. he made a little bit of money, and I said, well, Michael, maybe you ought to think about filing taxes, and um, because I'm such a great dad and I've had all these kind of great in- conversations preparing him for, you know, adulthood and taxes, he looks at me and goes, well, why? Um, well, because you paid taxes, and you're probably going to get all that money back. And he went, oh, thanks for telling me, Dad. Um, no, he, he wasn't like that. Um, but we did, do the, we did do TurboTax last night. And guess what? Michael's going to get, I think, a $514? $400. Oh, shoot. $400 refund, which isn't bad um, for a 19-year-old. It wouldn't be bad for a 47-year-old. Uh, so he's getting a refund. And because he did something about the truth that tax day is coming, he's blessed. But if you don't do anything about the truth that tax day is coming, uh, there could be repercussions, too. That truth determines behavior. That truth matters. And that truth should change us and should matter for us. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Don't keep living like um, well, maybe the resurrection's true, but it doesn't have any bearing on your life. It's not an idle tale. It's not an idle truth. Uh, we turn now to the women, and we get our bearings. Who are the heroes? Who are the heroes in this episode? The heroes are not the apostles. Uh, they're not the guys with the letter on their chest. Instead, it's the women. They're the wonder women, uh, you know, timely. Um, and John tells us that the disciples, on the other hand, are they're locked up behind locked doors because they're afraid of the religious leaders. But Luke tells us that the women are not frightened. They're out and about. They're not afraid of the religious leaders. Instead, they are afraid, in verse 5, of The angels, they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Because they feared the angels more than the religious leaders, the women were not afraid to tell all these things, to open their mouths and to, to talk the walk. It's common for you to run into the hypocrite or the person who, you know, like the grandmother in A uh, Good Man is Hard to Find, who just talks incessantly and, you know, doesn't walk the talk. But for a lot of us uh, who are sincere in our discipleship and want to follow Jesus, we don't talk the walk so much. These women, on the other hand, um, fear has a strange way of influencing them, um, A lot of times humans will use fear to silence people, like the bully on the playground will use uh, fear to intimidate his peers. Uh, Or the abuser will use fear to silence um, his victims. God uses fear not to shut us up, but to open us up. Psalm 22 says that you who fear the Lord praise him. All you offspring of Jacob glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. God uses fear to open our mouths instead of shutting us up so that we can start talking the walk. When's the last time you shared your story? When's the last time you had a conversation about Jesus with somebody who doesn't follow him, right? I'm not talking about... In your Bible study or your discipleship class, whatever. But when's the last time you turned to a coworker or a neighbor and said, "You know, something about your relationship with Jesus?" Invited them uh, into your home, invited them to your church, uh, engaged them with the real intention of sharing the gospel with them. And I, you know, I, it, it's hard for me. It, it takes courage. It's a struggle. I know it's hard for all of us. But these women, uh, <laughs> they're a great lesson to us because basically it boils down to this. We, st- we tend to think nobody's going to believe us. Who's going to believe us? Um, you know, we, It sounds kind of like a fairy tale to talk about a man who rose from the dead and died for our sins so that we can have life in him. But keep in mind that back in this first century era, women were considered inferior to men. And that meant that uh, women could not own property, they couldn't get an education, and they couldn't speak in public, and that meant they couldn't give testimony in a court of law. And it's a really remarkable thing that God chooses a group of women to be the first witnesses to bear testimony to the truth of the resurrection. And the disciples thought it was an idle tale. And if the women uh, were not ashamed to open their mouths and to tell all these things to the disciples, even though they weren't going to be believed, does that mean that we should wait for that just the right moment where we're absolutely certain that we're going to get a hearing and we're going to be convincing and then we'll share our faith? It doesn't doesn't matter if you don't think somebody's going to believe you. And it doesn't matter if you're going to feel foolish. It doesn't matter if you're going to you know, feel like, oh, no, um, what's this person going to think of me? That's fear talking. That's humanity using fear to, to silence you. And God would have us fear him so that we would open our mouths. Uh, and lastly, when you look at this story, who do you respect? The men for their silence and disbelief or the women for their eagerness and their zeal and their faith. Yeah. Who do you respect? Each one of us has an account of the resurrection. If you well, I mean, Let me put it this way. Each one of you who uh, has a relationship with Jesus has a relationship with the risen Jesus. Yeah, you, you weren't Thomas, and Jesus didn't appear to you bodily and tell you to put your fingers in the nail holes. Uh, you weren't Mary uh, with Jesus standing before you in the garden. You didn't get that physical encounter, but if you know Jesus and if you're following him, you have had an encounter with the risen Jesus. You have a resurrection story to tell, just like these women did, just like Peter could have. And uh, and our challenge this Easter is to talk the walk, to know that this is not an idle tale. It's not an idle truth. It's a true truth that that is worthy of our witness. Let's let's pray. Father, would you help us to bear witness to your resurrection? Would you help us uh, to tell the truth about what we know, uh, what we've experienced? Lord, thank you for revealing Jesus uh, to each of us who know you. And we pray for those who are still asking questions or still trying to connect the dots. Uh, Lord, reveal more of yourself to them and Help them to be just as skeptical about their assumptions as they were about your claims. Uh, we pray that you'd give them faith. Or we pray you'd give us all uh, growing faith so that we would know you better, that we would be more and more convinced that this is not uh, a tale and it's not something idle, but it's, it's truth that's worth sharing, it's truth that's exciting, and it's truth that's life-changing and transformative. And We pray, Holy Spirit, Continue to change us in Jesus' name.